Well, let's say a prayer before I uh, ramble on for who knows how long. It probably would be a good thing. Dear Holy Beloved One, this morning is a little different. You've given us fair warning in the reading from Isaiah that Phil read uh, that we don't think the way you do, that your thoughts and ways are foreign to ours. And that's hard for us. So as we stumble through the reflection here this morning, trying to come to grips with the way you think and, and what's important to you, I ask that you would help us out big time. Help me uh, not wander too far into the weeds. Help all of our hearts be open and receptive to what you have to say to us this morning. And so that a result of of these moments that we share together, that we might become more the people you dream us to be, that we would become a people that brings joy to your heart. We ask for the help of your spirit to guide us as we take this journey this morning. Help us, please. Amen. So our texts for this morning, which, by the way, I did not choose. So this was not me deciding this. These come from our lectionary. And they're uh, some, I think, difficult texts. Jesus starts off. We hear that, that word that drives so many of us in progressive churches absolutely crazy. Repent, uh, because it's been used to beat people over the head and not try to knock some sense into them for centuries, and we have a natural aversion to it. But the, the word repent in the Greek that, uh, that Luke wrote in is the word metanoia, which basically just means change the way you think. As I said uh, in the prayer, you know, God has made it clear that we don't think the way God thinks. So the word repent there, and there's two stories of uh, people that died horrible deaths. Some were sacrificed by the Romans. Horrific. And Jesus says, repent, or the same thing is going to happen to you. And, and so what could possibly Jesus mean by this? Why, here, here, here's what I think anyway. So I uh, have been reading of late a wonderful Catholic theologian by the name of John Donne, the same as the poet from the... Uh, from the what, 16th or 15th century in England, 17th century, I forget when John Donne wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls. It's not that John Donne. This is a John Donne that taught at Notre Dame. And he suggests, what if death isn't an interruption to life, but rather its destination? And I think that might be close to what Jesus is, is saying here. You know, we think of death as some horrific end to life. It interrupts everything. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. But what if, if John Donne has any wisdom about him, which I think he does, death is the destination of our life. And so knowing that, knowing where it's going to lead, use this time wisely to live so that when death comes, it won't be an interruption to life but that we will be prepared for the destination. Uh, when I was doing my uh, work at Berkeley at PSR on my doctoral dissertation, the great mentor that inspired me was a, uh, 
existential psychotherapist named Irvin Yalom, who practiced in the Bay Area. And his great mantra was death saves us. And here's, here's what he meant. The only reason there's a possibility for meaning in your life and my life is because at some point we're going to die. It's going to come to an end. Imagine if you and I lived in a world where nobody got old and died. Nothing would be important. Think of Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog's Day. Same thing over and I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to it. We would be bored to tears. But because there is an end point, a termination to this experience you and I call life, that infuses this experience of life with the possibility for deep meaning because it is limited. I call this the, the dying well paradox. And the way I phrase it goes like this, contemplating our death compels us to live a fully engaged life now while we can. And living a fully engaged life now while we can is the best preparation for our dying. Now, certainly the, these thoughts are not uh, unique uh, by any stretch of the imagination to, to many folks. In fact, the prophet uh, Muhammad, there, or there's an Islamic saying I love, it says, die before you die so that when you die, you won't die. And there's a, a poem by the Rabia el-Basri, who was an 8th century Sufi mystic, mystic, and the first female Sufi mystic, by the way. And she writes, ironic, but one of the most intimate acts of our body is death. Die before you die, said the prophet Muhammad. Have wings that feared ever touched the sun? I was born when all I once feared I could love. So possibly that's what Jesus is suggesting here by repent, or you're going to die the same way. If we're freaked out about death, if we think it's an intrusion to life, if we don't prepare for it, if we don't live a meaningful life now, when it comes, we really will die like all the others. That's one thought anyway. So that's the theoretical idea. Then Jesus moves on in our text our, to this parable of the uh, unproductive fig tree. And so let me, I think the first part of this text is the theory about really living now while we still can before we die. And then Jesus, uh, ever wise as he was and is, uh, makes it real, makes it very particular, makes it specific. Okay, that's the theory. Now, how do we do this? How do we, how do we actually live now a fruitful life, unlike this fig tree, which was unfruitful? Well, just as a fig is a particular type of tree, so a follower of Jesus is a particular type of human being. And a church, I would suggest, is a particular type of community. It's not a political action committee. It's not a social club. It's not a group of sports fans or theater enthusiasts. It's merely a motley crew of would-be Jesus followers trying to, to live together. So that's the way I think of a church anyway. Well, a, a fig tree produces a certain kind of fruit, figs. What type of fruit 
does the master gardener expect from a Jesus follower or from a church? Well, I would suggest for your consideration this morning, three things. That we are growing in compassion, that we are growing in wisdom, and that we are attempting to be agents of reconciliation. Now, I don't have time in our sh short few moments here in the reflection to come up to explain why I chose these three things, but I didn't just pull them out of the air. Look, I've been a student of the book for more than 50 years, a diligent student. For crying out loud, I was a Pentecostal preacher for 30 years. I know the book. And so I came to these three things after a good amount of time studying the life of Jesus and the early church. And so I think it's pretty safe ground to say that we should consider the fruit that the master gardener expects from us would be compassion, wisdom, and agents of reconciliation. Now, this does not mean when I talk about being agents of reconciliation, that we're all going to agree with everybody, that everybody's just going to love we a big kumbaya moment. We all love each other and things are wonderful. No, it doesn't mean that at all. I think it does mean, though, that we must find a way to disagree while we still honor, respect, and care for those folks that we disagree with. And in fact, this is one of the reasons I joined uh, in 2000 seven, I believe, the United Church of Christ. At that point, I had been part of a, a group of would-be Jesus followers that everybody had to think alike, and we all had to agree. And if we varied, we were heretics. And so every there was groupthink was incredibly powerful, and everybody had to be on the same page. And I got tired of that. I, I thought, how that, that's not helpful for me. So I started out to look, where could I go? And so I took a class in St. Louis at the uh, UCC seminary there, Eden Seminary, on the history and the polity of the UCC. Talk about a snoozer of a class. But anyway, what I learned was, is in 1957, when the UCC was formed, four different denominations, Christian denominations, got together and said, look, this is crazy. we got to learn how to get along. And so they covenanted together that we will be in relationship. We will covenant with those folks we disagree with because they can help liberate my thinking and I can help liberate theirs. It's in our DNA that we would be in covenant with people we don't see eye to eye with but that we do it in an honoring, in a loving, in a kind way. And the great motto of the UCC then, and I think still is, that we all may be one. It's from the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, that we would all be one. So it's in our DNA to be in communion, in relationship with people we disagree with, but to find a way to do it with kindness. So let's, let's get real now. That's enough theory. Let's, how does this actually work? Well, you may find this hard to imagine, but even one as saintly as myself have people in my life that just drive me crazy. I mean, bat crazy. I think, God, what the hell were you thinking when you made them? And why the hell are they in my life? Because this is not helpful. I mean... So this Lent, 
in all seriousness, I'm working on this in my own life right now. So I'm preaching to myself as much as you this morning are sharing with you. These are really the things that I wrestle with at night as I, as I try to go to sleep. In my own heart, I'm trying to learn how can I get along with these folks. So I've decided I can either let these folks that drive me crazy stoke the fires of my outrage. And I know it's so much fun to lay in bed and, and think how stupid and insensitive they are. And it's just, oh, it's delightful. Or I can heed the words of Rabbi Jesus this morning, Kyrie Aphes Alton in the Greek. Master, mistress of the vineyard, let it be for one more year. Let it be. Now, the word aphis there literally means forgiveness. And it's the word Jesus particularly chose as he was hanging in misery on the cross when he cried out, Father, Mother, aphis them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. That word. So let it be, could literally be, forgive them, forgive it for another year. I said, let, let it swim in forgiveness. And let's see if, if we can get some other fruit next year. Now, for me, in all reality, as I'm working through this in my own Lenten journey, it means I'm taking a hiatus from blaming them. And I'm working to consider how I am contributing, how I am contributing to my own inner turmoil. Now, just to be clear, forgiveness does not mean staying in an abusive or physically unsafe or mentally unsafe relationship. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I am working really hard about not speaking negatively about these folks that drive me crazy or even thinking negatively about them when I'm alone. But rather, I'm trying to be open to the idea that maybe, just maybe, the trickster God that we have has placed these people in my life to help me grow up. I know it's a radical thought. I am this Lent. I'm trying to give up being afraid. And I'm really trying hard to give up being self-righteous and vengeful. In fact, that's, my great hero, Thomas Merton, that was his aversion to political activism. He says being politically active, it's a huge temptation to self-righteousness and vengeance. And I think if our activities are filled with self-righteousness and vengeance, it may yield fruit, but the fruit will be poisoned and it will be short-lived. And the only anecdote I know for the poison of self-righteousness and vengeance is reconciliation. So I've come to believe that if I want to move forward in my own life and that next spring when the master gardener comes by for fruit inspection, I really do want to have something to show for myself. And just like the fig tree, I think my own life right now, and I think the life of our church is in a Kairos moment, a, a moment of decision. A lady I once knew, I was at a conference one time, a church conference, and a lady I once knew said, when does God get out of this what God wants? 
meaning church, all this activity we do. I mean, we come because we want to be, have a meaningful life. We want to make friends. A lot of, we all have agendas coming to a meeting like this. But when does God get out of this with God wants. In fact, in the, in the text, the story that Jesus tells of the parable, the 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 man or the owner, the woman or man that owns a vineyard. So the the, the business is growing grapes, and and producing wine or or grape juice or whatever. But in the the vineyard, not for productivity or for pro, but the owner has a fig tree for their own delight. It's not for commerce. It's for joy. And so when does God get out of this, what God wants? So a key issue that I have to resolve if I'm going to fight the poison of self-righteousness and vengeance in my own heart is reconciliation. And so I would offer three things for you this morning. Key issue, I'm working with these people that drive me crazy in my life right now. Do I want to be reconciled with them? And there's three three ways I phrase this in my own thinking. Am I will I commit to be reconciled with them? Or at least, at least, if I can't do that, am I at least willing to be reconciled with them? And if the the, the hurt or the the pain or the Frustration is so deep. <laughs> My third and final option is at least, am I willing to want to be reconciled with them? Because I realize if I can't say yes to any one of those three things, I don't think there's, uh, there's much hope for me in producing any kind of worthwhile fruit that would please this being that we name God. I, I realize if I can't do that, if, if I can't at least be willing to be willing to be reconciled, then I know nothing about the aphes, the forgiveness Jesus talks about in this text. And I know nothing about what it is to try to be a Jesus follower. There simply is no other way forward as I see it. And I risk the master gardener being greatly disappointed next spring when he or she comes by to inspect to see what kind of fruit I've been producing. That's why this, this stuff of uh, being an agent of reconciliation as a community, if we're going to call ourselves a church, if, if we're going to call ourselves that particular word, it's not optional. We have to learn how to do this because we live in a world that doesn't behave or think the way God does. I, I just see no other option. So the question for me, this Lent, this 20th of March, as I sit here in the sanctuary with two other folks, as I look around right now, am I willing to die to my self-righteousness, my feelings of vengeance, and allow the power of forgiveness to fertilize my soul, the soil of my soul, that I might produce the fruit of compassion? and wisdom and reconciliation that seems to be so important to this being we call God. Now time will tell for me and for us. So in conclusion, I will yield the floor to someone who earned their PhD in the work of reconciliation and was even a martyr for the cause. And I'm 
speaking of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote these words over 50 years ago. And they're just as prescient today as they were when he, when he wrote them. He says, though our scientific and technological genius, through them, we've made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make it a brotherhood and a sisterhood. But somehow and in some way, we have got to do this. We must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. Selah. Amen.